Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're very glad you're here. I would like to extend a special welcome to those of you who are visiting for the first time. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I ask you to greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Please say with me the words by which we light our chalice. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Come into this circle of love and justice. Come into this community of prophecy and power. Come into this place of peace and let its spirit strengthen your heart. We come into this place for peace and we come for comfort. We also come to get something done. Our mission statement tells us what it is, and we say it every Sunday together. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Let us continue our meditation with the Buddhist metta meditation or loving kindness prayer. We usually say this through three times. The first time through, we say it for ourselves. I'll say a line and you say it after me should you choose to. May I be free from danger. May I be mentally happy. May I be physically happy. May I have ease of well-being. The second time we say this for somebody we love. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. The third time is a spiritual challenge. We say this for somebody against whom we have a resentment. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. May it be so. I uh, always get impatient when you're uh, listening to a songwriter or something and they spend the first five minutes apologizing or, you know, they have a cold or they didn't get to practice or yada yada. You should never do that. So I'm going to start by uh, apologizing for, number one, my Spanish, which is non-existent, and number two, my knowledge about this uh, issue of immigration, which is uh, the knowledge of someone who watches a lot of news but doesn't have a lot of first-hand experience. I want to start by quoting a poet named Gloria Anzaldúa. The U.S.-Mexican border es una herida abierta 
an open wound, where the third world grates against the first and bleeds. And before a scab forms, it hemorrhages again, the lifeblood of two worlds merging to form a third country, a border culture. Borders are set up to define the places that are safe and unsafe, to distinguish us from them. A border is a dividing line, a narrow strip along a steep edge. A borderland is a vague and undetermined place created by the emotional residue of an unnatural boundary. It is a constant state of transition. The prohibited and forbidden are its inhabitants. That's from her book called Borderlands, La Frontera. On the front of your bulletin is a photograph of one little stretch of the fence that has been built between the United States and Mexico. That fence costs the U.S. $4 million a mile. And that's the estimate from Fox News sources. (laughs) So now... Some of us are on this side of the fence, and some of us are on the other side. Notice how I said some of us. I say this because the more we expand the meaning in our mind of the word us, the closer we are to the people we would like to become as Unitarian Universalists, as spirited people, spiritual people, as moral people. I think we broaden and broaden our sense of we and us, and that is a work of a lifetime. I started thinking about this at one of the leadership schools. You know, every district and region has its leadership school in the the Unitarian Universalist Association. And this was one for the Metro New York district. We were at the beach. And a guy was standing up and talking casually about the election that had just happened. Um, where Peter Morales was elected our president for four years. The woman who ran against him was the minister from the church in Dallas, Laurel Hallman. And he just said casually, well, look at what we had to deal with last time we had an election. We had to deal with, um, there was a Latino candidate and a woman. And I'm not usually like this. Really, I'm very sweet. But I just blurted out, who's we? What we had to deal with? And he was taken aback, confused, didn't know what I was talking about. I wouldn't have said, look what we had to deal with. We had a woman candidate. I hope it finally dawned on him, but I I did not want to continue yelling. So I... I shut up, which is a decision that sometimes I make. Before the border, before the wall, uh, people and wildlife crossed at will, roaming the desert, the river, the valleys. Humans migrate. Humans migrated out of Africa. We went from Africa all over the world. Some of us stayed in Africa. Some of us moved away. 
Humans came over the ice bridges from Eurasia into what is now North and South America. Some of us stayed in Russia and India and Tibet, and some of us came here. We moved to find food, to avoid war, to avoid enemies, to take new land, to explore. We moved when others came who threatened our space. Land was occupied peacefully or with force. Those who were here in this land before the Europeans came had taken it from others. In the mid-19th century, Texas declared itself independent of Mexico, and ten years later was annexed by the United States. Some of us were here, and some of us were in Mexico. These days, some of us are trying to migrate to find work. The opportunities in the Mexican countryside have dried up. The North American Free Trade Agreement resulted in financial boom times for some, for a few, for the big agribusinesses that grow avocados in Mexico. They are doing great. For the small farmers, it is difficult. Those of us on that side of the border and those of us on this side of the border, the small farmers are having a hard time. Corn, grown by giant agribusinesses in the United States with enormous subsidies from the U.S. taxpayers, is very cheap. And with NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, it became cheaper for farmers in Mexico to buy U.S. corn than to grow their own corn. The crops were worthless. Nobody could recoup their investment Pork, same thing. There used to be lots of pig farms in Mexico. Most of them have closed up now because the subsidies for the United States, large farmers are keeping them in business, and the small farmers here and the small farmers in Mexico are having to close up shop and find something else to do. This side of the fence, there are some government programs that help to retrain small farmers, keep them up while they uh, try something else. On the other side of the fence, <clears throat> there are also government programs that help small farmers, but no one apparently finds out about them except for the friends and families of people who work in the government. There's a very interesting documentary produced by Martin Sheen, whose family came from Mexico, in which they... They, have, they interviewed for the film about 700 um, folks in Mexico about migrating. And so you watch the interviews. There's one guy who speaks English, but the rest of the time it's subtitles for people who don't speak Spanish, like myself. And so what they say is that um, most of the interviewers, interviewees, said that they like to go work in the United States for a while and send money home and then go back to their families. They come to the United States and um, live 12 in an apartment or so. They live as cheaply as possible, sending money home. There are many small villages now where there are only women and children in the villages because all the brothers, all the dads, all the uncles have gone to the U.S. to work. 
How much money do these workers send home? Well, in 2008, the estimate was $25 billion, with a B. The economies of many Mexican states is largely dependent on this inflow of cash from the U.S. And several of the interviewees said that if there were not the possibility of leaving the village and going to work temporarily or permanently in the U.S., there would probably be another revolution in Mexico. But this, this possibility of coming to the U.S. for work keeps the Mexican government from having a lot of trouble with the people. So some of the people interviewed said it's in the government's best interest that we go work in the U.S. because otherwise we'd be storming the battlements. What most of the people interviewed said they would like to do is to come to the U.S. for six months, work, send money home, then go home for six months, then come back for six months, go home for six months. But they can't because the border crossing is so dangerous and so expensive, it costs almost $2,500 to pay a smuggler to take you from, your, uh, from the Mexican side of the fence up to this side of the fence, direct you through the desert, etc. Um, it's a very dangerous as well as very expensive because um, there are vigilantes who patrol the border, who shoot at people crossing. There's uh, the possibility of being cheated, abused, raped, abandoned by your smuggler that you've trusted. With the crossing being so expensive and so dangerous, nobody can do it every six months. And so many people who make it across will stay in the U.S. for years, sending money home to their families. And so, you know, when they leave, the kids are three and six and eight, and when they come back, they've got almost teenagers. The families learn to live without them, or maybe they're in the U.S. for so long, they meet somebody else, they fall in love, they want to stay and their family is forgotten with no way of making any money. If there were temporary work visas available in numbers commensurate with the work that's available, people would come to where the work is and then go home. Families would have a better chance of staying together. The odds of dad finding another love while away and leaving the family would become smaller. Of course, it could still happen. It happens here. Some of us want to work here and then have the option of going home, and some of us want to stay here. Our Unitarian Universalist principles can inform our stance toward immigration. We do not all have to agree. In fact, that would be a bit strange. One thing we can agree on is that as we discuss this issue, we will not call any human being illegal. If we're in a country without proper documentation, we are just undocumented. We are not an illegal person. That would be like calling any of us who did something against the law, which I have never done, but I'm sure somebody in this room. <laughs> An illegal person. I'm not illegal because I broke the speed limit. I just did something illegal, but don't tell. 
We are not aliens. We're not aliens. We are us from a different side of an artificial border. We are residents. We are undocumented workers. We are undocumented. What you name someone shapes how you think about that person or that group of people. The name of a group helps you either uh, understand that that group is part of us or helps you pretend that that group is not part of us. So whatever you name someone, when you name someone illegal aliens, it kind of helps you dehumanize. When you name a whole group of people with a derogatory name, it helps you imagine that this group of people is less somehow than you are stupider, lazier, dirtier, immoral, sneaky. It helps you lump them into a group. The clothes they wear, the music they like, the comedy they like, imagining that you already know everything about them just because you know that they belong to this group. God bless the universe for continuing to teach us about it. I remember being in New Jersey and um, driving through the neighborhood with the windows of my car open and seeing a bunch of folks who looked like they were from the other side of the border working on a house and there was music blasting. It was opera. I was like, whoa, that's not what I expected. I read a detective, I, li- I read lots of detective novels, and there's one detective who's an African-American man who lives in New York City, and um, he is an ex-boxer, and you think you know, I mean, you just don't, you don't even know what you're assuming about him until you read that he's driving in his car listening to Joni Mitchell and singing along at the top of his lungs. Whoa. People are individuals. And anything that assists you in lumping people together as a group in your mind is doing you a disservice. I'm glad I wanted to talk about this this week. I was cursing myself actually earlier this week because I always give my sermon titles a month before I actually write the sermons. And I was thinking, why am I going to talk about this? I don't know anything about this. I don't have time to think about this. And then I thought, well, this is, yes, this is my white American citizen privilege. I have the privilege of not thinking about this if I don't want to. And why would I want to? Other people do not have the privilege of not thinking about it. They have to think about it every day. I've actually been thinking about it a lot because uh, someone I know is trying to get a continuation of a visa for the United States, and she can't find a sponsor with a bank account of $25,000 that Homeland Security demands that you have now to get an extension of your visa. You have to find someone to sponsor you who can show that they have $25,000. How many of us even know one person that has that much money in the bank that they can show? Much less somebody who'd be willing to sponsor you with it.
I'm becoming aware of the overwhelming process this person has to go through and how much at the mercy of the system they are. They have to answer questions on the forms that they fill out, like, are you a terrorist? <laughs> Many of you know Brian Ferguson, my colleague, who's the minister in San Marcos. He sent me his sermon on immigration. Um, he said, you may want to use part of it, and I do. Um, I want to use this part where he talks about his experience of filling out the paperwork. This is a quote for Brian. Are you a criminal? They ask. I better say no. Are you a professional vagrant? Wow, I didn't know that was a profession. Are you planning to engage in commercial sexual activity? I really don't think anyone would pay me for that. America really is a great country. <laughs> Have you ever been convicted of moral turpitude? I'm not sure. <laughs> but is it a crime not to know what it means? Have you ever persecuted anyone on behalf of the Nazi party between the years 1933 to 1945? Does that mean it's all right to persecute people on behalf of other groups and at other times? These are genuine questions that I had to answer. My immigration experience had humor, annoyances, and humiliation. But my overriding impression was one of feeling powerless as an immigrant, and I had an immigration path as easy as any immigrant could have. They need some help with that form, don't they? <laughs> the petty behavior of people in power sometimes becomes arbitrary, and we can see the inhumane and unjust ways in which immigration policies are enforced. Mo many of you are familiar from your college social studies or psych courses of the experiment that happened when one group of students was uh, asked to be the prison guards, and the other half was asked to be the prisoners. Um, in that psych study, it was a matter of hours before these California students became fairly brutal to their charges, and the experiment had to be stopped. The ACLU reports that detainees, including children, are often subjected to strip searching, shackling, solitary confinement, lack of access to telephones, mail, and legal resources, denial of outdoor recreation, and verbal, physical, and even sexual abuse. Survivors of torture, asylum seekers, families with small children, and individuals with serious mental health issues and medical conditions are routinely mixed in with local prison populations serving time for crimes. The Immigration and Customs Enforcement itself acknowledges that between 2005 and 2008, 66 people died while being held in its custody, many of them from inadequate medical care. It is common for detainees to be denied medication for chronic illnesses or needed medical treatment. 
Raids by the ICE are frequently conducted with unnecessarily violent tactics, traumatizing children as they are forcibly separated from their parents. We need to change this system. We need to change these laws, and we can. We're Unitarian Universalists. We've been changing laws. We've been changing the U.S. since its birth. We can do this. The Unitarian Universalist Association has on its website a statement concerning immigration. I didn't want to give each one of you one because I didn't know if you'd be interested, but they're in a stack on your way out of the sanctuary. You can pick up one, um, a list of Unitarian Universalist stances and positions on immigration. And they talk about how Enough visas should be issued so that businesses do not have to hire undocumented workers. And they talk about the exploitation that occurs when a work visa is tied to a particular employer. And then you can't change employment because that, no matter how that employer treats you, if they cheat you or otherwise mistreat you, you can't really change. They talk about families where one member is undocumented. Someone came, migrated and then fell in love and had children, and so one parent is undocumented, and that family lives in fear of a knock at the door that will drag one of them off and deport them. They talk about how vulnerable you are when you don't have the right documents to criminals because you hesitate to approach the police because you don't know if the police will help you or if they will detain you. So in order to build a more just community, in order to behave as if every human being had worth and dignity, these are our principles. Our Unitarian Universalist Association has listed a list of reforms. I am a person who likes order. And I worry that I am this person that Dr. Martin Luther King was talking about in his letter from the Birmingham jail. He says, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizens council or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. We believe that everything is connected. Now we just have to make the connections. Now will you pl uh, please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment, these we hold in our hearts until we are together again. There's freedom in that land that we dream of. There's justice in that land. There's singing in that land. Until we get there, we can sing. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. 
We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. If you want to, you can sing with me. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.